that's, that's our part of our passage this morning. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes, and so we are moving through that book as a church body, church family, and um, we're definitely over halfway through it. We're going to try to cover two chapters next week. This week we're covering the end of chapter 7. If you're new to the Bible, Ecclesiastes is kind of towards the middle. Right here, I open it up and it's right there. Uh, there might be some Bibles in front of you in one of the chairs and they around page 556, 557 is where we'll be. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us in our time together. <clears throat> God, we come to you and it's just been good to sing, sing these truths. You've commanded us to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's your plan for us. It's also your plan that we would gather like this together on the Lord's Day, the day that Jesus resurrected from the tomb and showed his victory over death. And so we have that in our minds, and you've told us to study the word together and come around it, and it needs to be preached and taught. And so this is a good thing for us to be assembled here together uh, in person as a family. I pray that you would use this time. We're all humans, and so there's the human element of weakness and fallibility, but your word is infallible, and your spirit is true, and so please lead us through this time in your truth and by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So like I mentioned, we're in the book of Ecclesiastes, and if you're joining with us, let me just give you a brief recap. Uh, Solomon, wealthy king, successful king, he goes outside of his palace doors and looks at Israel and it's booming. Uh, things are doing well. The economy is doing well. It's a time of material success. Uh, he looks at all of the good things that are going on and he starts asking questions that we're not really used to asking. We just kind of look at the stats and say the numbers are good so life must be good. But Solomon just starts asking questions that go beyond the stats He's asking questions like, what is life? What is pleasure? And he looks at these questions through two different lenses, two different worldviews. Uh, the first view is life under the sun. Uh, when you look at life in that worldview, Solomon is saying you can look at life in such a way where you don't take God into account. It's just you and all the numbers, and all of the people, and all the things that you can see. And in that kind of worldview, you're basically making decisions based on your own wisdom. You look inside of yourself, or you look horizontally to other people for wisdom and answers. And Solomon says, when I look at life under the sun, the answers aren't there. And he uses this word quite a bit to articulate a conclusion about life in that worldview. He says it's vain. And vanity there has this idea of mist. It's vapor. You can't hold on to it. It's, you try to bottle it up, you're going to be frustrated. And so at some point, even people who have all the numbers right and all the life that looks like it would promise pleasure, it just, it's vain. It, th there's a lack of substance to it. But then he looks at life through another perspective, and this is life under the hand of God, or life from the hand of God, life as a gift of God. 
Uh, from this perspective, life starts with God. Life and everything about it is a gift from him. And this is how life is meant to be lived. It's meant to be lived in relationship with the creator who gives us things to enjoy. And as we step into life, we can enjoy things like his creation, flowers. I know those aren't real, but you know what I'm getting at. You can enjoy food. You can enjoy a beautiful day. You can enjoy friendships. But you enjoy them as a gift from the creator. Life is meant to be lived out under the hand of God. And what Solomon is doing is he's entering into both of these worldviews and he's digging around in life under the sun and he shows us it's just vain. Life must be lived with this perspective that I'm walking hand in hand with God and it's a gift to be enjoyed. Now, to walk hand in hand with God, Solomon is building an argument now that really starts to take focus and I think it's about time that we almost have to look at the end of the book and see the end of the book and read it back into the present. So just turn over to chapter 12 for a moment here. Here is where Solomon is going with life under the hand of God. You want to live life under the hand of God. What does this look like? He says this in verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. And here it is. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So Solomon is, is sort of building towards this conclusion. And it's helpful for us to see that right now, life lived under the hand of God. There has to be this proper fear of God. We'll talk about that. We've talked about it in previous weeks, but it's in this passage, so we'll talk about it again today. The big idea for this morning's sermon is simply this. Fearing God is far better than relying on personal wisdom. Fearing God is far better dropped into relying on personal wisdom. That's the theme that this passage is sort of dropped into. Um, just before we get started, let me give you fair warning. Commentaries talk about this passage and say it's kind of frustrating. It's frustrating because it doesn't seem to have a tight theme. You're reading through this maybe in your personal devotions, your personal reading time with the Lord, and you get to the end of it and you're like, okay, so what did he just say? What was the idea? There were a bunch of little nuggets of wisdom, but what, what was he driving home? And it's frustrating to work through this, Part of that is because this is what's called wisdom literature, where Solomon employs Proverbs, not just, this, not just this essay where he can smoothly move from one thought to the next. He's actually employing Proverbs to convey a thought. And so if you feel frustrated by it, just know that this is a style of literature that isn't really familiar with our Western view of literature. Um, it's wisdom literature, and so we want to soak into it, and we want to grab these nuggets that are all there and then make our conclusions from it. So again, our big idea is fearing God is far better than relying on personal wisdom. Now, it gives us three reasons why it's better to fear God than to rely on your own personal wisdom. The first reason is found in verses 15 through 18. 
I've stated it this way. You can't secure your life. You can't secure your life. So verse 15, Solomon makes an observation here where he says, in my vain life, life under the sun, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. And so simply, if you're following the notes that were out there, he makes an observation and here's the observation. Life does not appear to be fair. It really doesn't appear to be fair. I mean, some righteous people die way too young. Some of you may have seen that story that was on the news about this young mom, 23 years old, in the Illinois, state of Illinois. She's reading a Bible to her seven-month-old baby when a gun was fired and a stray bullet hit her and killed her just this last week. Here's a young mom with a seven-month-old on her lap reading the Word of God to her baby And you ask yourself the question, why does this mom who is training her seven-month-old, like just saturating this little infant with the scripture, why does she die? And then on the flip side, Solomon is saying, I've seen righteous people die too young, and then there are wicked people who keep right on living. Why do some people get to live what seems to be a healthy life? That's what Solomon observed. And it's frustrating to see that. In verse 16, though, Solomon gives an instruction. If what you're living for is a robust, long life, he says this, do not be overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? In other words, if you, what you think is that being a good person is going to get you a long life, think again for a second. If you're going to give yourself over to being this super righteous, super moral person, Solomon is saying it's it's vain to have that kind of mental ambition. Now, just a quick explanation. He's not saying it's okay to sin. He's not saying it's okay to be spiritually lethargic. He's looking at people who are going through all the motions and they're banking on their motions of obedience and saying, well, if I do these motions of obedience, God's sort of going to be obliged to give me a long life. If I live my life in such a way that cashes in perfect obedience to the Lord and I become really clever and live this ultra-wise life, then God's going to cash out to me a long and enjoyable life. That's how I'll live to the ripe old age of being 100. And Solomon is saying, nope, don't do that. That's, That's not true because I've seen the righteous die young. We've seen missionaries like David Brainerd die at the age of 29 years old doing a good thing for the Lord. There's this truth that God is not obligated to give us a long life because of our moral superiority. He's not going to be compelled to do something because we do acts of obedience. Well, if a righteous life won't get me long years, then maybe I should go to the other end of the spectrum. Let's throw morality out the window and pursue wickedness, which he gives a second instruction in verse 17. He says this in verse 17. Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? All right, so righteousness, super moral life, nope. Wickedness, long life with that, nope. So what is it, Solomon? What is the answer about getting me down the road to live a long, robust life where I can see my grandchildren and great-grandchildren? What is the answer to all of this? 
Well, right after seminary, um, I moved here, and uh, I was studying the book of Isaiah, and I was confused by all the prophetic passages in the book. Uh, Were the prophecies already fulfilled in Israel's history, or were they prophecies that were yet to be fulfilled in the future? And I'm studying this book trying to see, God, when is that event supposed to take place on your timeline? So I emailed one of my professors in seminary, and I asked him my questions. What I was expecting was a clear email that would provide me with all the answers to the questions that I was asking. But he responded with a statement that has stayed in my mind over the last 14 years or so. He said this to me, you are asking the wrong questions about the text. The question shouldn't be focused on the when, it should be focused on the who. And that's where Solomon is leading us. He's saying, you're asking the wrong questions. We're asking, how long can I live? When down the road can I I get this long life? But in Solomon's worldview, he says, you're missing the point. You're asking completely the wrong question about how long a life you should live. You should be asking, who should I be living it with? That's the more important question. So in verse 18, Solomon responds with a conclusion. You can see how this is all coming together. He says, it is good that you should take hold of this. The this is what he has just explained. Live a righteous life, moral superior life, doesn't guarantee long life. Live a wicked life then, doesn't guarantee a long life. You should take hold of this, that neither of those will get you a long life. So what am I supposed to grasp? What am I supposed to really hold on to? And he says this, you should fear God. That's what he says in verse 18. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. And Solomon is saying, this is something that isn't just supposed to be intellectual knowledge for us this morning. This is supposed to be something that you grasp, that you get your mind around, that you actually live out in your life. It's the kind of truth that people would look at you and say, oh, that's just not somebody who knows the answer. That's somebody who's taken it to their heart and they're living it out. And again, what is it that he wants us to live out? He wants us to live out this truth. Fear God. That's the important thing. We're tempted to ask all these questions about life under the sun. And Solomon says, no, you're asking the wrong questions. Here's what you need to be focused on. Fear God this morning. He's been talking about this in earlier passages. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 14. He said, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. You see, what God does in our lives, whether our lifetime is 65 or 25, nothing can be added or taken away from it. So what's the conclusion? God has done it so that people should fear before him. That's the focus. Okay, life under the sun, how long can I live? Nope, that's wrong. You're relying on personal wisdom right there. You have to fear God. Ecclesiastes chapter five, verse seven. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. All right, so he's aiming to get our focus off of this, this life over here. And he's bringing us to this place where Do we have our hand in God's hand? And is that the most important thing to us? Are we walking in relationship with him? I mean, we do give a lot of thought over to how long of a life can we live. But the more important truth is, 
What about this life in relationship with God, holding on to his hand and walking with him? Uh, Back at the beginning of our study, you might remember the illustration that I gave to you. We talked about two different illustrations about fearing God. What does it look like to fear God? And I used this illustration from John Piper where he went to someone's house and there was this big German shepherd sitting on his back haunches with its ears perked up aware of everything that was going on. You can just see that big canine just sitting there soaking everything in, not intimidated by anything. And Piper brought his kids up to this person's house. They were getting together or something like that. And the owner of the dog told John and the children, he said, don't run away from this dog or else he will chase you down and tackle you. Fear the dog by not running from the dog. Stay close to the dog. When you think about individuals in Scripture who feared God, what did their lives look like? Were they running from God, looking for life under the sun, or were they just surrendered from that stuff, surrendered to the Lord, saying, it doesn't matter. What matters most is me walking in fellowship with you. Like risks in life, oh no, I might lose life, or fellowship with the Lord. That's what fearing God looks like. Somebody who is staying in close fellowship with the Lord. Someone who is obeying him by faith. And so very practically, we just look at this and we're like, okay, what does it look like to walk in fear of the Lord this week? It means, man, I want to be close to the Lord in his word and in prayer. And not only do I want to be in close fellowship with him, but to walk in fear with God means I'm also trusting and obeying him. I'm loving him with my heart, soul, mind, strength. I'm loving my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm loving my neighbors. That's what it's going to look like to walk in fear, in the fear of God. And so Solomon is just asking us, like, are you relying on personal wisdom and just thinking in wrong categories altogether? Like, have you missed it? Have you missed it? Or are you fearing God? Verse 19. It's as though Solomon says, now, just in case you missed this idea that You know, if you came to the conclusion, that may be a better way of saying it. If you came to the conclusion that wisdom is pointless, uh, let me just share with you that you shouldn't throw wisdom out with the bathwater. You know, you need to apply wisdom. So verse 19, he says, wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. Um, Wisdom is a jewel. Go after it. Pursue it. Wisdom will keep you. It's God's wisdom here to his people, that will give you strength. And so what we see here is in verses 15 through 19, you can't secure your life, so fear God. Just fear God. Verses 20 to 24, another reason for why you and I should fear God and not rely on our own personal wisdom. Verses 20 through 24, simply this, you're not perfect. You're not perfect. Look at verse 20. He says, surely there is a right, not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Uh, our first observation that we make here in verse 20 is all of us sin. Uh, we might come out of some passages of Scripture, having studied them, and say, well, I'm not in that category. I'm really not. I think I'm in the category of fearing God. 
He says, well, just so you know, everybody sins. Even the righteous commit sin. We see this throughout scripture. Romans 3 verse 10 says, none is righteous, no, not one. Psalm 143 verse 2, David writes, no one living is righteous before you, God. So categorically, we know that all people sin. We've transgressed God. We've transgressed his holiness. We deserve death. He goes on to answer the question, how do they sin? And this is another observation in verses 21 and 22. He says, do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. I, I love the bluntness of this. The things that Solomon says here makes you kind of want to chuckle because he gets right inside our wheelhouse and we all know that we live in verses 21 and 22. We get all worked up when people say something about me. Like, they said, what about me? No, they didn't. They wouldn't dare talk about me like that. Would they? They actually said that? They didn't know my intentions. They've sinned. Solomon's like, yep, they have. Uh, but don't forget... Um, you've done this too. If you're honest, you've crossed that line before as well. You've said things that you shouldn't be saying about other people. You've insulted them. You've complained about them. You've spoken in ways about them that you would never say to their face. So now we're all in the same boat. None of us are super righteous. We get that. So fear God because you're not as good as you think you are. Just walk with him. And not only are we not super righteous, but we're not super wise either. None of us have complete wisdom. In verses 23 and 24, here's another observation. He says, all this I have tested by wisdom. What did you test by wisdom? I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? What Solomon is saying is this. There comes a point in life when you wrongfully say to yourself, I'm going to figure this out. Solomon said, I'm going to figure it out. Like, I'm just going to apply my mind to this and I'm going to get to the bottom of all the problems that are going on in life and I'm going to have the answer. I'm going to be correct and show everybody how it can be done. And Solomon says, uh, it was too deep. Let me give you a couple examples of where we aim to do this. One is in the context of relationships. Husbands, let me just poke you in the eye for a second. <laughs> you do this a lot with your wives. A problem pops up. I will be wise. I will get to the bottom of this. We're going to get through this. I'm going to get answers. But in the end, your wisdom and your pursuit of earthly wisdom leads to a bigger mess than what existed before, right? You've tried to offer answers, and no, no, you completely missed your wife. A little more close to home is parenting. Uh, every parent in here started off with a lack of perspective. We appeal to passages like Ephesians 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So this is what we're supposed to do, but notice what doesn't come after that. What doesn't come after that is, if you do this, then this will happen. And so what happens is, so many times, parents who aren't perfect do all the right stuff, almost all the right stuff, but then one out of the three or one out of the five or two or more of the children, they go off the deep end. 
And you look back as a parent and you're like, oh, could I have done more as a parent? Absolutely. I was aiming to follow the Lord in this area, but here's what I found. I don't have the wisdom to know why all of this happens. I can't figure out the formula for this wisdom to make this son or this daughter turn out like that other family's sons or daughters that look perfect. And Solomon's like, I aimed for this kind of wisdom, but it was far too deep for me. I couldn't find it at all. All right, so there's some relational context. Um, What we've all seen in this area of looking for wisdom but not being able to find it are the cultural events over the last five years or so. A lot of cultural upheaval. There's been questions. What creates advantage and disadvantage in society? I don't have statistics with me, so the way that I'm asking these questions are, I think, reflective of statistics, but you'll see what I'm saying here. So why is the African-American population, broadly speaking, less educated? Why is there proportionately less wealth in the African-American community? Why is there more crime per capita in the African-American community than in the white community? Those are the questions that our society has been asking, right? We've all heard them. They've popped up on the news. And so life under the sun says, let's go find some wisdom. This has turned into a hot mess, hasn't it? Oppressor versus oppressed. Let's get rid of all authority. Let's defund police. Let's say more money needs to be pumped in. Now something's going on, but here's what Solomon is saying. Living life under the sun and searching for wisdom under the sun you're not going to be able to come up with answers there for everything in society. Uh, We've all felt it, and I feel like I bring it up every week, but I think it's needed for us to bring up every week because this whole thing with COVID and shots and vaccines and um, all that stuff has has the potential to divide churches. I think you all have done a good job, really. I think you all have done a good job at being gracious with one another. You're going to have different perspectives But you've seen the world try to appeal to worldly wisdom, try to come up with answers moving forward. And Solomon says, if you try to figure out life and try to get an answer to everything in life, he says here, you won't be able to make sense of it. It's far too deep. It's like going up to the upper peninsula, boating out to the middle of Lake Superior, and saying, I'm going to be able to dive down to the very bottom of Lake Superior, grab some of the earth and bring it up to the top and show everybody that I could do it. Trying to figure out life with earthly wisdom is impossible. It's like that. And so Solomon is saying, look, in this context of Ecclesiastes, life under the sun, you feel the grind of it. You feel the frustration of it. You feel the vanity of it. What should you be doing? Walking in fear with God. Just walking with the Lord. There's a third reason why we should be walking in fear with God rather than relying on our own personal wisdom. And this is found in verses 25 through 29. He says this, you and I are schemers. You're a schemer. Um, Let's see how he unpacks this. First, we're presented with a quest. 
Solomon is searching for a couple of things in verse 25. Look what he says. I turned my heart to know and to search and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things. And I also wanted to know the wickedness of folly and foolishness. So he's going after a couple of things. I wanted to find wisdom and I wanted to know, like, what's behind all this wickedness, this, this folly or this foolishness? And in verses 25 through 29, he says, here's what I found. I went on this quest. I went on this journey looking for things. And here's what I found. He found a seductive snare of sin. In verse 26, he says, here's what I found. I went looking. I find something more bitter than death. Here's what's out in the world. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. Okay, remember, he's using wisdom literature. As you read through the book of Proverbs, he uses lady wisdom and lady folly. Proverbs 5, 6, and 7, there's this lady folly, and she's the woman who waits until her husband leaves for a business trip, and then she dolls herself up, puts on nice perfume, and stands out at the end of her sidewalk and waits for young, vulnerable men to walk past the front of her house and then says, hey, my husband's gone on a long trip. He's not coming back anytime soon. Why don't you and I kind of hang out for a few weeks? He moves from that kind of sexual theme about Lady Folly to just this overall category of sin and this allurement of sin in Proverbs. And here in Ecclesiastes, he's like, okay, I've looked at the world. There is this temptation out in the world for people to get sucked into sin. And notice the imagery that he uses here. This sin is like a snare. You've seen a fox with its foot in a trap it can't get out, it's snared in there. Or a net that has come over top of a bird that can't get away. Or iron fetters, iron cuffs that go along the wrist. They've been clamped down and locked. You can't break away from them. He said, I'm seeing this out in the world, life under the sun. There are some people who just get trapped in sin. That's what I found out here. But he also says this, which is hopeful. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. It's an interesting perspective where the one who is walking in obedience to God isn't led into her snare. He or she just keeps walking away from sin because they're walking in relationship with God. They're staying close to him. They're fearing him. Like they're not trapped in sins. But then there's this person who's not there. They're already a sinner. They've got sin in their heart. And so when somebody is given over to these kinds of sin, it's not that this sin just popped up, bam, the trap came down and they're stuck. It's like they already had sin in their lives. They were given over to this and now they find themselves in its traps. If there's anything in your life that you are coveting, that you're eyeing that's out in the world, you need to beware. You should run from it like Joseph ran from Potiphar's wife. Run to God, fear God, walk in fellowship with him. He moves on in verses 27 and 29. He says that we're a bunch of schemers. Verses 27 says, behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things. 
which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Again, wisdom literature, I think that's just a a saying there that says, it was hard for me to find anything among people. There wasn't anybody among people. And he says this, see, this alone I found. Here's, Here's his conclusion, that God made man upright. God made man without sin, but they have sought out many schemes. God started off with man, he did it right. You can't blame God. But man is the one who out of his heart has gone this way of scheming, looking for his own way or her own way to preserve themselves, to promote themselves, selfishly going about things in order to sort of push themselves forward to give themselves the success. Mankind is the scheming one here. We see this pattern of humanity from the beginning of Scripture. Adam schemed for more pleasure to be like God, so he sinned. Cain schemed to be self-promoting, so he killed his brother. The world became a bunch of schemers in chapter 6 of Genesis. God said, we got to start over. It's a mess. Genesis 11, hey, let's scheme and see what we can do. God, I can't walk in fellowship with you. I got to do what I want to do. And Solomon is saying, stop. Stop. It's like, you are the problem here. We're all schemers. None of us are innocent. We talk behind people's backs in order to get the conclusions we want. There's not a righteous man who does good and never sins. We all have a bent towards pursuing what we want. Sometimes we're subtle with our schemes. can be real subtle. Maybe nobody notices it. Maybe we're not so subtle. Maybe we're like a bull in a china shop saying, I don't care. I'm just going to get my own way. But Solomon says you need to realize this. We have this problem. We're schemers. We're sinners. Like, We want to walk with God on one hand, but you have to realize this is who I am. This is my sin nature. I'm driven by this desire to be self-preserving. I'm driven by this desire to say I deserve more than I have right now. And so I'm going to go about life in such a way where I get what I want. And Solomon says, don't blame God for all this mess. Don't blame him. Thankfully, Ecclesiastes is not the last word in the Bible. Uh, We've been singing about our Savior this morning. Here we are, folks. We're sinners. We feel it. We have failed this past week. We've said things with our words. We've thought things. We've maybe acted in ways where there was scheming that was taking place. But as we move through Scripture, we see the one hero who is not a schemer. We see the one who we could say, I can trust him because he's not scheming to get his own way. This is where we are as Christians. We look to Jesus, and this is what Jesus says in John 6, verse 38. He says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will. He's not a schemer. He's not a poser. You can trust him. He says, I'm not here to do my own will. I'm here to do the will of him who sent me. And so we all look horizontally at each other sometimes and we're like, can I trust, can I trust, can I trust all of you? What are you thinking about me right now? 
What are you thinking about my view of this or that or where I stand on this position? What are you thinking about me? And now we can look at Jesus and we can say, I can trust you because you have come and you're doing the will of your Father. You are the one who's walking in perfect obedience to God. And so now in all this scheming mess, Jesus is saying, okay, look, here I am. I'm the Savior who has come. Jesus completely relied on his Father, not his own will in the garden when he prayed, not my will but yours be done. And he went to the cross and he died for schemers. He knew that we scheme. And so he's saying in his heart, saying in his prayer, not my will, but yours be done. And if we're honest with ourselves, like our MO is not your will, God, but mine be done, and I'm going to try to do it as subtly as possible. It's the messy world that we live in. We want to take things into our own hands. We want to control the outcome of everything. And here's a beautiful savior who comes and he says, I'm not scheming. I'm here to do the will of him who sent me. Our savior graciously comes to save us. He begins a work of sanctification in each one of our lives. He teaches us the word of God. He teaches us how to fear God and to rely on God, not ourselves. And so season of life, season of life, what does he keep doing? He keeps peeling away the dependence upon ourselves. He keeps leading us through trials where, man, we, we're, we're brought to an opportunity where we can say, okay, I will trust God or I will trust myself. Okay, I'll trust myself. I'll try it this way again. Man, that was a failure. He peels that layer back. It's the work of sanctification where he's graciously bringing us along and after that layer is peeled back, we're like, oh, thank you, God. I can trust you. I can walk in obedience to you. So a question this morning is this. Do you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? Our new lives begin with him. We go from being complete schemers now to being a new creation. Are we perfect? Absolutely not. But he unleashes those fetters from us. He starts moving us in this new life with the Father. If you don't know him, you need to know Jesus died for all of your schemes and he took the punishment that you deserve for all of your schemes and he's offering his life as a gift to you. And this morning, all of your sins can be forgiven by trusting in Jesus Christ. A new life can begin this morning. And if you think, oh, are you saying now that you accept Jesus, you're perfect? No, I think I've said that a couple times. Here's a question. As we walk with our Savior, what should we do if we have a scheming problem? If I'm a liar, if I'm given over to lies, if I'm given over to covetousness, number one is this. Three ways and then we'll be done. What should I do if I have a scheming problem? Number one, see your desire for control. See your sin. See life lived out in the wrong world over here, life under the sun. See it, it's wrong. To be like, I have to control this from start to finish, you've got a control issue. You're a schemer, like name it, that's what you are. Second is this, confess your sin. So you've seen it, you've identified it, and now you confess your sin to God. 
Lord, I've been relying on myself more than I should be relying on you. I'm relying on my wisdom more than walking in obedience to you. I'm focused more on this than my relationship with you. And not only do you confess it to God, but secondly, you confess it to the people whom it has impacted. Um, Let me just step back for a moment. Um, In our society, by and large, most of those who are porn users are men. Not all, but most. And this is a scheme. Gonna find my secret place and I'm going to get what I want. And what has happened is your sin has splashed up against those around you. And so what takes place is you think, oh, this is done in private, but all of this, all this fallout is happening to the lives around you, whether you realize it or not. And in order for this to be taken care of, number one, you have to realize that this is in your heart. Number two, you have to confess it to God. But when you're confessing it to God, you can't stop there. You have to confess your sins, whether it's porn or lying or whatever it is for men and women, you have to confess it to the people whom you have sinned against. You come clean with this. You're saying, I'm not trying to scheme or hide anything, anything more. You're an angry person. You're like, oh, no, I got this under control. No, you're an angry person. It's splashing up against your spouse. It's splashing up against your family. It's splashing up against You have to confess that. God has a way of using confession to humble you, to peel back those layers and help you walk in obedience to him. All right, now here's a third thing. Third step is simply this. You've identified it, you've confessed it, and now we'll use Solomon's language. You're saying, okay, God, I want to fear you. Fear God. Saying, here's the path that I'm on. I want to walk in obedience to God with my life. I want to walk in obedience to God with my relationships, with my interaction with the world. By faith, God, I'm relying on you. You've told me, fear you and keep your commandments. So Lord, here I am. I'm going to walk in obedience with you. This is the picture that we get from Solomon here at the end of Ecclesiastes. We have to be real with ourselves that sin is present, but he has a way forward with us. Through Jesus, we walk in obedience to God. We walk in fear of him this week. Let's pray.